Good morning, everybody. Great to see all of you. I'm glad you're here. Welcome. Welcome to Heartland. Glad you're here this morning, especially all of you guys watching online and all over the world. We're glad. Because everybody just give them a great hand as they're watching this morning. We're glad you're here with us. Today, we come to the conclusion of this series, The Book of Daniel, and Days of Future Past. There have been five messages already, which are online, and you can go back and watch if you've not been with us, if you're just coming on board today. We've been learning about Daniel and his three companions, the first six chapters of the book, which is really a book of prophecy. One of the reasons why I love the Bible so much and keep reading it, it's not just a book about stories of the past. It's actually about one-third about stuff that's still to come in the future, and that's why it's still the world's number one bestseller. People keep reading it because the things it prophesies keep happening, and people study it. They want to know what's going to take place. Daniel's one of those major prophets in the Bible. There's five of them, and he's one of the most important, and he speaks about not only prophetically through what he had to experience through his culture, but what, what he saw, what's going to come in the future as well. First six chapters have to do with how Daniel and his companions were captured, taken back to Babylon along with 10,000 others, and they were being squeezed by the culture. We're going to force you to become like us. And you know the story already, how they said you can't worship what you want to worship. You're going to bow down to what we say. You're going to believe, think, act, behave just like us. And I think that's so prophetic for us because we live in a culture like that, that don't you dare go against what culture says or we'll shame you and persecute you and criticize you. So we've been trying to figure out, well, how should we live? How can I live exceptionally in times when I'm being squeezed into a mold? And that's what I talked about last week, how to be an exceptional person. Well, the first six chapters had to do with Daniel's history. The last six chapters of the book of Daniel, chapters 7 through 12, have to do with some visions that he had about the future. When he recognized that Jeremiah's prophecy had come to a conclusion, that Jeremiah had prophesied that the, the captives would be in Babylon for 70 years, and Daniel was now about 86 years of age, and he started realizing the, the 70 years is almost finished. And he began to pray and seek God, God, what is next for the people? Tell us what's going to happen. God responded and gave him some visions of what would still be to come. Let me give you a little roadmap of these last, last uh, few chapters. Chapters 7 and 8, Daniel had a vision of the future. All of those things have already happened. They've already been fulfilled. Chapter 9 is a vision of the future, and that's in our future. It's what's still to come, and that's where we're going to go today. So you might want to find that in your Bible. Chapters 10 and 11 through verse 35, again, visions of Daniel's future, but all of them have already taken place. In fact, friends, listen to this. In the first 35 verses of chapter 11, there are 135 specific events that can be individually and independently corroborated by known history. They've actually happened, 135 specific things that he saw in the future. I wish I had time to explain most of that to you today. Daniel saw it all. He saw the rise of every empire all the way through the Romans. He, he saw the future coming. He even saw Alexander the Great and details about his life. But we don't have time for all of that today. We really have to limit ourselves with the time that we have to what happens in the future. And Daniel chapter 12, again, is a few more verses about what is still to come. We're going to focus our attention not on the stuff that's already happened, but kind of standing on that as confidence. If, if what he saw, so much of it has already occurred, what is it that is still yet to come? Now, this chapter 9 of Daniel is one of the most important uh, chapters in the entire Bible. 
It actually is one of those key chapters that unlocks almost all of the other prophecy chapters in the Bible. That doesn't make it easy to understand. It's actually one of the hardest, uh, hardest chapters. There's so much written about this one chapter. There's so much information. People trying to discover what was Daniel actually saying. Today, to, for us to understand that, it's clear that we're going to need a metaphor to understand it. I'm going to paint you a picture first, and then we'll read the verses. Okay, do you understand that? You got something to write down with? We're going to have a metaphor first, and then we'll read. This past summer, someone prophetically said to me, you cannot climb a 14,000-foot mountain. <laughs> they actually put mount, uh, money down and says, we bet you can't do it. So, of course, I took that challenge. I said, I will climb a mountain. So me and some friends, we got together, we trained, and we went to Colorado, and we climbed Mount Quandary, which is a 14er in Colorado. Here's a picture of me standing in front of this little hill. Actually, it doesn't really look like it's that big of a deal. It's not, how many of you think that's a really big mountain? It just looks like a hill. That's a 14,000-foot mountain. From where I'm standing, you just can't see how far the distance is, and you can't see how great the elevation is. So we started walking halfway up this mountain. I was dying. I was thinking, I'm glad the end is near. It seemed to be very close. In fact, here's a picture of me getting close to the summit, and I'm thinking, if I can just get over that, you know, this last little ledge of rocks, I will be right there to get to the summit. Unfortunately, when I got to the top of that rock, this is what it actually looked like. <laughs> and I was just, no! Because now the elevation was even steeper, and it was even further away than I thought. In fact, from that point, the distance was greater than the distance that we'd already come. So I had seen the peak, but I couldn't judge the distance, and I couldn't tell all the peaks in between. Anytime you look at a mountain range, it's exactly like this. Take a look at this mountain range, and here you are standing in front of a vista. You cannot see. One more slide. Take a look. You can't see the distance. You can see all of the peaks, but you can't see the distance. You can't see the valleys, and you don't know how long those valleys are. You don't know how big the incline is. You can only see from your perspective. The verses we're about to read, Daniel is standing at a fixed point, and he's looking into the future, and God gives him a vision of the future. All he can see are the peaks that spike up, but he can't see all the stuff in between. And that's why when people approach the Bible, they try to look at it as a little clump. They, they can't understand that there's distance and there's time and there's valleys in between. So I want to read you a passage that Daniel had a vision of 77s, 490 years of future history. And he has four peaks in this little passage. Let's look for them. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. 77s, or 490 years, Daniel, are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for wickedness. By the way, when Jesus came, he did those first three sin, uh, things. He finished transgressions, he, he died for our sins, and he atoned for wickedness. The next three he's going to do when he comes again in the future to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Verse 25, no one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the Messiah, the Jesus, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens, 49 years, and 62 sevens, so that's what? Well, 434, got that for you, okay? 62 sevens. 
Jerusalem will be rebuilt. So from the time the word comes out, rebuild the city, until the time the anointed one comes in, there's going to be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, meaning the wall and the moat around it. But it'll happen in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the, the 434 years, the anointed one will be put to death, and it'll appear like he's accomplished nothing. Literally, he'll be cut off and executed, is what the original says. Then the people of the ruler will come and destroy the city and the sanctuary of the temple. And the end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. Then he, meaning now a false messiah, a false anointed one, an antichrist, will confirm a covenant with many for one seven, so seven years. In the middle of that seven, at three and a half years, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And in the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation. Something so sacrilegious, so offensive, that the temple is desecrated and people desert it. They don't go there anymore. And that'll all happen until the end is decreed and the judgment that's going to come on the Antichrist is going to be poured out on him. So Daniel just inserts, he doesn't win in the end. Just be, just be okay. He doesn't win. This is a hard passage to understand. But it's a key to understanding almost all the rest of prophecy. What exactly is he saying? A picture is worth a thousand words. Let me show you the peaks that Daniel saw. Here's Daniel, and that's the little guy over here at the corner. That's Daniel there. And he, don't I draw good? I actually drew that. And uh, he sees the future. He sees the first peak. He sees what, he couldn't believe it. The, the prophecy, Cyrus is going to decree that the Jews can go back and rebuild Jerusalem. What an amazing word came to Daniel. He had no idea. You're going to go back and the king is going to fund the recovery effort. You're going to rebuild the city, rebuild the streets, rebuild the walls, rebuild the trench around it, rebuild the temple. King Cyrus is going to decree that you guys can go back and do that. That was an amazing thing. He's, do you know how long it took for that to occur? You'll see in just a moment. Then he saw a picture that the anointed one, he saw a vision that the Messiah would come and he would, he would arrive but his life would be cut short, he would be executed, it would be cut off, and it would appear like he'd accomplished nothing. And then, shortly thereafter, the people of the ruler would come and destroy the city. Well, in AD 70, the people of the ruler, Titus, on behalf of the emperor of the Romans, came and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Destroyed it, destroyed the temple. Literally, just one rock, didn't, didn't even leave one stone left on another. There was some gold in the mortar and Titus heated, superheated the walls, took the stones apart to get all of the gold, and the temple was destroyed, and Israel was no more. And for thousands of years through history, there was no nation of Israel, and there was no temple, which made it very hard for people to understand this next part, because Daniel sees a vision of someone, a false messiah, an antichrist coming, and setting up an object that causes desolation in the temple, and people didn't understand because there was no Israel and there was no temple. But apparently the prophecy for a future seven years would come that an Antichrist would come and set up this abomination of desolation. Now let me give you the timeline on all this. From the time it took to rebuild Jerusalem, from the time the word was given to the time they paved the last street. Do you know how many years that was exactly? 49 years, just like Daniel saw from the time the word was given to rebuild Jerusalem to the exact day that Jesus rode in, 
I mean, literally, you can study this for yourself. I don't have the time, but really quickly, King Cyrus on a certain day decreed, go back, rebuild Jerusalem. The day Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, 483 years to the date. Daniel could not see the valleys, but he could see the peaks. And there's a gap left. What my point is to you is Daniel saw 490 years of history. 483 of them have already taken place, and there's one seven-year period left in our future. And in that seven years, there's going to be a temple rebuilt. And see, people for years and years couldn't understand this. There wasn't even a nation of Israel. But in 1948, at the, on the heels of World War II, there was a brief moment of sympathy for the Jewish people in this world because they're... They're despised and hated all over the world, as you know. But in that moment when it was brought to light what Hitler had done, in that brief window, there was a decree granted that Israel should have a homeland again, and the nation of Israel was born again in 1948. Now, there still is no temple here today, and that's why this seven years is still in our future. It's almost hard for us to imagine how a temple will ever be in Jerusalem. Because on the very spot where that future temple should be, there now exists the third most holy site in all of Islam, the Dome of the Rock Mosque. In fact, if that temple were to be placed where it's supposed to be, take a look at where it would be. Um, there is the Dome of the Rock, and there's the outline of where the temple would have to go. So everybody sits and looks at this passage and says, "How Jews can't even go and pray on the top of that mountain without conflict today. It's illegal to do that. But the scripture says that one day there's a future seven years yet to come where a ruler will come, a man of peace, a, a Messiah will come, and he'll make it possible for this temple to be rebuilt. He'll look like Israel's friend, but halfway through the seven and a half year peace accord, he'll unmask himself and he'll set him up as the one to be worshipped. And he'll set up an object of desecration. This is in our future. Now, that picture comes from a website called templeinstitute.org. You can look it up for yourself. Actually, the Jewish people and these rabbis believe that one day this is going to happen. They have prepared everything. Right now, the furniture for that temple is prepared. All of the utensils for the worship is prepared. They have the clothing for the priests. It's all ready. They just want the building permit. In fact, they even have on the website, they have the cow that they have prepared and selected to be the inauguration sacrifice for this temple. It's all ready. And they write on the website, they say, we know this can't happen in the natural. And they are waiting. They know that when Messiah comes, Messiah will make it possible for the only he could make it possible that there should be a temple in Jerusalem. But that Messiah is going to come, and he's going to break their hearts because he's not going to be who they think he is in the beginning. He'll break that peace accord, reveal himself as their enemy, and great time of persecution and hardship will happen for the Jewish people. You say, when is this going to happen? I know you said it's a future seven years. When will this occur if it's in our future? We're in that gap. We're in the valley right now. When is that last seven years of the 490 years going to happen? Well, Jesus talked about that. I'd like to take you to Matthew chapter 24, where he, he explains now, now that we have Daniel's backdrop, we can understand what Jesus was saying. Jesus left the temple. He took a trip with his disciples there, and they're standing inside of Herod's great temple, one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world, and walking away, his disciples were calling attention to the buildings, like, this is amazing. 
And Jesus said, do you see these things? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Not only does he say it's going to be destroyed, he says not one stone will be left on another, which is exactly what Titus did 34 years later when he came and destroyed the city and destroyed the temple. I only bring that up to say if Jesus got the first part right for us, we can be sure that the next, what he's going to say, is going to occur. Verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, just like us, and said, well, tell us, when is, when is this going to happen? What will be the sign of your coming and the, the sign of the end of the age, the last seven years? Jesus answered, because, you know, you're not going to know the date, but you can know the signs. Listen to what he says. Jesus answered, look at his first thing. Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah. You'll deceive many, and you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. These things must happen, for the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all these things are the beginnings of birth pains. And you understand that, labor pains. Like, the, the more intense they are and the closer they are together, the more you know the baby's just about to come. So that's what's happening in our world today. The more intense the contractions and the birth pains and the more close they are together, the more we ought to say the baby is right at the door. Then you'll be handed over and be persecuted and put to death. You'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Verse 12. Because of the increase of wickedness, and this is the sad part, the love of many, of most, will grow cold. In that generation, there's going to be a ton of people who know God, who believe his word, and they're just going to stop loving. They're going to actually become, they're going to know to love, but they just won't love. Their love will grow cold. Not, not their love for God. They're just, it'll just be a place, the world will be a place where love is very scarce. And Bob, people have said, well, you know, that's because people will abandon God. Well, no, it actually said in the scripture, because of the wickedness in the world. And you know what's going to happen? Because when, 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 the, when people who know the truth and when they see all the wickedness, they get very alarmed and they get very scared. And when people get scared, they get angry and reactive. And it says one of the signs in the last days is that the people who know better are going to start reacting in fear, getting angry. And the love of many will grow cold. And I'm seeing that start to happen. And my brothers and sisters, it should not be so. So he's, he's saying, just don't be surprised, though, that you see that happening in the world today. You see, that's why for us, it's not just some feel-good mission statement. We're here to love people well in these dark days and lead people to a transforming relationship with Jesus, launching people out to love more people well. It is the way, the exceptional way of the believer in these last days, because the normal way will be to just go along with culture and have the love of many grow cold. Look what he says. But the one who stands firm to the end, acts like Jesus, is the one who will be saved. Now, Jesus says, when you see all these things happening, you see these birth pains, 
See, every generation has seen these signs in their lives, and they've said, well, look, an earthquake or a rumor of a war, and they thought that maybe we're living in those times. I mean, imagine people right on the heels of World War II when a man like Hitler rose up and all of the wars across the world, the whole world at war, and the persecution of the Jewish people, and people thought, well, surely he is the Antichrist. Well, every generation has thought that they're the one but no generation has been like this generation. There's been no generation that has had all of the signs at the same time. There's been no generation like ours that has had all of the signs, but they're happening simultaneously together, which is what's happening right now, especially as you keep reading the, the chapter, verse 14. And this gospel will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations. That's not just countries. That's all eth ethnos, all ethnic groups, all, all peoples. So like in India where it's one country but there's 700 people groups and languages. And all over the world there'll be all these pockets of people that have no witness of the gospel. But in the last times, uh, the gospel will be preached in the whole world to all ethnic ethnicities and then the end will come. How could that happen except for now? I mean, how much longer really until everybody in the entire world has one of these? I mean, I mean, everybody's getting connected. I read this week that the Facebook company is building right now a 747 sized drone that's going to be able to stay aloft for a year. And the idea would be to put that over places where there are, is no internet access so that the whole world can be connected. <laughs> I was in Africa two years ago, and I was in the middle of nowhere in a village. I mean, people in grass skirts and huts and stuff, and a lady walked by me talking on a cell phone. <laughs> so I picked up my phone, and I looked. I had signals, so I called my wife. Hey, I'm in the middle of nowhere, literally. I called her. The whole world has one of these. And listen, this is... This, this is this is how the whole world is going to know. God is going to use technology to connect people. I couldn't believe it when we did our report at the end of the year, and I saw that there were 98 different countries that were tuning into our services every week around the world. Unbelievable. The gospel is going out to the whole world. We're part of a movement called Converge Worldwide. It's not just our church. We're part of a movement of churches that are dedicated to planting churches. When you give in this church, you're supporting the launching of churches targeting unreached people groups around the world. I talked to our director of missions last week, and he said that there are now known to be about 2,000 unreached people groups left. Just 2,000? That's a lot, but just 2,000 groups left that don't have a, a witness of a gospel or a gospel church. Well, last year, Converge Worldwide uh, launched churches in 50 unreached people groups around the world. Just Converge, not all the other Christians, 50 of those. This year, the plan is to, is to double that by 50% and see 3,000 new churches planted in unreached people groups around the world, and we are a part of that. We've had missionaries that come to our church that are in some of those places. I think of a couple right now in Muslim China, uh, an unreached people group inside of China, a people who are persecuted in China. When they meet for church, they put a mattress over the door, and we support them every month. You support them. The day is now here. We're living in that generation where before long, it's only just a short time away where the whole world, you can put a whole Bible school on a cell phone and the world will know the gospel. So let me read you the last verse of this passage, verse 15. Look at how Jesus concludes it. He says, so when you see standing in the holy place 
the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel. I mean, he validates it. What Daniel said is going to happen. And he says, let the reader understand. To which we say, whoa, that's hard to do. (laughs) It's hard. It's complicated. Yes, it is. But I want to take us now for a quick little tour in the time we have left. Let me just give you the mountaintops. We can't go into all of the passages to study. If you'd like to read, you can read places in your Bible like the book of Revelation, Matthew chapter 24 and 25. You can write down 2 Peter chapter 3. You can write 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. You can write down part of the book of Ezekiel. All of these passages talk about this seven-year period. But I just want to give us now, real quickly, without too much, you know, getting lost in the horns and the hooves and the beasts and all that, I just want to give you the mountaintops, okay? And we're just going to go through it quickly. What is going to happen inside of that seven-year period? The book of Revelation begins with a series of messages to the church that's living inside of the gap between, you know, the last 483 years and that seven years to come. There's seven churches, and basically there's a There's Jesus talking to churches saying, here are the seven major challenges that you're going to face before I return. In the last part of chapter 3, it's not in your notes, it's not going to be on the screen, but listen to what Jesus says to the church. Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world. Then you go to chapter 4, and the church is not mentioned again throughout the rest of the book of Revelation. And most scholars believe that is because the church is no longer here. And the first event that begins the seven years is the rapture of the church, the catching away or the snatching away of believers, God rescuing his people before the coming time of testing that will come upon the earth. Now, this is a disputed matter. A lot of people will say, well, no, there's no rapture. Christians are going to go through the tribulation. Others say, well, no, God has not appointed us to wrath, but to salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's going to remove us before this all begins. Okay? Here's the thing. It's a disputed matter. Uh, as for me, I'm being beamed up in the first wave. If you want to hang around, it's all right by me. Knock yourself out. <laughs> but here's the thing I do know. Here's what we all agree on. Here's the part that everybody agrees about. Okay? Here's the common uniter. God knows how to preserve his righteous remnant when the world is going crazy. We've already seen that, and that's exactly what he's going to do. One way or another, God is going to protect his people. Whether they're taken up in the front or whether they go through it, his hand is going to be upon them because I have not appointed my people to wrath, but to salvation in the Lord Jesus. We believe, though, it's the instability that happens when thousands and millions of people are removed from the world that caused the second event to happen, which is the rise of this Antichrist, this man of peace. And you know what? He's not going to be a a man with horns and a pitchfork. He's going to be, the scriptures say, a man riding a white horse. People are going to be excited. He'll have solutions. He'll have answers. And he's going to bring peace to the troubled Middle East that nobody can do, that right now is threatening all of our lives. And here comes one who will make a peace treaty with the nation of Israel and all of her neighbors, and everyone will be in awe, and he will allow this temple to be rebuilt. It will be one of the great wonders that people, how could this happen? Somehow it's going to occur. At the time that that begins, the other thing that's going to happen simultaneously, the the next mountain peak, will be an increase in man-made and natural cataclysmic disasters that'll start happening around the world. We're just seeing the birth pangs today. Then the next thing that will happen is three and a half years in, in this tribulation period, 
this Antichrist is going to break the treaty. He's going to exert power. Suddenly, no longer a man of peace. He'll consolidate his power on the world, and he will set up the object that causes desolation in the temple and basically make people try to worship him. And people will rebel against that, and there's going to be a time of great war, an intense war, even greater tribulations coming upon the earth. The Jews aren't going to like that, and they're going to rebel against him, so he's going to come to attack Jerusalem, which was his design all along, to destroy the Jewish people. The great battle of Armageddon will, will be about to be fought on the plains of Megiddo, just outside of Jerusalem, when Jesus Christ himself will come back, the next mountaintop experience, where Jesus will come to rescue the Jewish people, to rescue all the true believers that are still here. He won't fight them. He'll just say a word from his mouth. <laughs> And he'll destroy the Antichrist, and he'll be gone, and all of us will be with him together, and he'll set up his kingdom on earth for a thousand years, the millennial kingdom of Jesus. Oh, I wish I had time to explain what that's going to be like and what he describes, what he's, how he's going to bring peace to this earth. We don't have the time to do that today, but there is an incredible future in front of those who believe, and there's an incredible opportunity to be missed by those who don't. The book of Revelation ends, the very last chapter, after that millennial kingdom, God's going to destroy this earth and create a new heaven and a new earth. There'll be a great judgment. Those who believe will go to judgment and be judged for, it'll be their day in court where their sins will be laid out against them. Those whose names are in the book of life will stand before a judgment for reward. And God will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the reward I've made, a brand new earth. This idea that we're gonna be on some cloud with a harp like some fat baby forever. <laughs> that's less hell to me. That's not anything, that's not, I don't know where we got that, but that's what people think. No, it's gonna be tangible. No ethereal floating spirits. You're a real person living in a real body on a real new earth. It's gonna be paradise. It'll be rivers and oceans and streams and beaches and palm trees, it have to be for me. And there's gonna be mountains and it's just going to be incredible. And not only just the setting, but peace with God. No more sin, no more cancer, no sickness, no disease. All people of the world, all ethnicities together. No more misunderstanding, no more cultural breakdowns, no more stress. I mean, that's why it's so awesome what God is doing here. We're getting a glimpse of what that's like before it comes. But God's going to unite everyone together in perfect peace. True understanding, true love, with our God forever walking with him. That's the future. So in light of all of that, what do I do now? How do I live? And what's the implications for us who are still here waiting for that, that time to begin? Well, let's just jump back and conclude by reading the last part of the book of Daniel. That's where we began this journey, and let's finish it there by what he had to say. Daniel chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. At that time, God's going to summon his great angel, Michael, who he always calls in a time of war to protect his people. He's going to call Michael, who will stand guard over your nation. He'll arise. There will be a time, we've heard about this, of great anguish, greater than any since the nations first came into existence. But at that time, every one of your people whose name is written in the book will be rescued. There it is again. Rescued. That's you and me. That's when we believe. That's when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and said, I'm not God, you are. I'm going to follow and do what you say. Your name was written in the book of life, and it'll be there forever. No one can erase it out. It'll never be snatched out and torn out. You're sealed. You become part of him. The scripture goes on to say, many whose bodies lie dead and buried will rise up someday everlasting life. 
and some to shame and everlasting disgrace. There's something to gain and something to lose. Those who are wise will shine as bright as the sky, and those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever. You see, God's saying, I'm looking for some wise people. I'm looking for people who get it, people who understand that there's a short time, the days are evil, the time is short, and it's almost here, it's right at the door. And there are some people who say, I'm willing to, I want to shine, I want to be an exceptional person. I'm going to be one of those exceptional people that, that learn how to just have a righteous, disciplined, loving response to that unfair criticism and persecution. I'm not just going to react in an unloving way like the rest of the world does. I'm going to learn how to be a servant, a permeating presence in hard places. And I'm going to be someone who shines brightly, a beautiful light of truth in a very dark, lost world. We're going to be like a hospital for those who are hurting. I mean, somebody that, a group of people are going to shine brightly and be that light of love in a very, very dark time. Exceptional people. God's looking for people who get it. I want us to to get this because here's the thing. We need to have this idea of we need to reach as many people as possible with the time that we have left because the building is literally on fire and the time is short. And how can we rescue as many people? We're not just here to hang out. We're here to go. Jesus said, you're not going to know the times, but you will be my witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Go. You can actually speed along my return when you're on mission for me. We need to reach as many people as we can, as quickly as we can, with whatever means that we have, be able to see people come to know Jesus. Verse 4, as for you, Daniel, keep this prophecy a secret. Seal up the book. In other words, protect it. Don't let this be lost. Save it until the time of the end when many will rush here and there and knowledge will increase. Another specific sign of the end, which only our generation can see it. I mean, literally, has travel increased? My grandfather literally plowed a field with a, with a horse. And in his lifetime, we put people on the moon. And think of the millions of people rushing here and there today. And then you have this increase of knowledge, which I don't need to explain. I mean, knowledge now is doubling every 18 months. And we live in those days. And this should be another sign to us. And if your mind is blowing up here and you're going, this is so much information. Look at what Daniel says in verse 8. I love this. I heard what he said, but I did not understand what he meant. <laughs> and you got, yeah, I don't get one thing this guy's talking about. You're in good company. Daniel himself was, I don't get this. I mean, I hear what you're saying, but what, what are you talking about? How will this finally end, my Lord? Verse 9. But he said, go now, Daniel. Like, stop trying to figure out all the valleys. Put away your charts. Put away all the, you know, your predictions. I mean, you can, you're only going to just see the peaks. But here's, let me just summarize it for you. Keep this all sealed up to the time of the end. There's going to be a time of purification and cleansing. And those are, people are going to be refined by the trials. Wickedness will continue. The wicked will continue their wickedness. None of them will understand. Only those who are wise will know what it means. So, so be wise. Like, recognize it. Look what Peter said in his book, 2 Peter chapter 3, almost the same thing, talking to the end-time believers. Listen to this. More importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come, mockers of the truth, following their own desires. They'll say, Jesus coming back. <laughs> really? I mean, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? Where, you know... From the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. He's not coming back. 
Oh, no, verse 8, for you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years with the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow in his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed. He wants everyone to come to repentance. You can almost see Jesus, who, who's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, and he doesn't know the day or the hour, only the Father knows. And he says, Lord, is it time now? Can I go get my people? He says, just wait, there's one more person. I'm waiting on this one person to repent. And turn. I don't want anybody to be destroyed. It's the heart of God. That's why I'm appealing to us to be wise. Don't ignore this. Heed it. Verse 10, the day of the Lord will come, look at this, as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise. The very elements themselves will disappear in a fire. The earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment, it'll be destroyed. And see, here, remember this. The purpose of prophecy is not to scare you or to alarm you. It's actually here just to warn and educate and encourage and inspire that there is a great reward coming for those who believe. Yes, all of this is going to happen to this dark world, but I have a plan and a future for you. I have a new heaven. I have a new earth. I have a great reward for all those whose names are found written in the book of life. But be wise. Verse 11. Okay, this is where he wraps it up. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, should we go hide out in a hole and be a doomsday prepper? No, that's not what he says. Avoid everybody, you know, leave the world to the... No, no, no. He says, what exceptional, holy, godly lives you should live. Looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. What does he mean? He says, you have a response to all of this. What's the rise response? Live an exceptional life. Be that light in the darkness. Don't be like everybody else and be just like the culture. Don't be this unloving, you know, love grows cold, anxious. Some of you guys read stuff on Facebook and you get all afraid, the government, and you're all worried about what's going to happen. You know, of course they're going to act like unbelievers, but you be an exceptional person, a disciplined, loving response in the face of unfair criticism and persecution. Amen, Darren. That was so good. Come on. That's how I, I'm calling you to... <laughs> You don't have to react to all that. Every time you see a news flash, don't be, your confidence is your quality. That the end is already made out. God's in control of all of this. He's called me to be exceptional. He's called me to have, uh, to be a permeating presence of a servant in hard places. He's called me to be a light uh, of truth in really dark days. See, here's the thing. You are exceptional. You don't even know it. Yes, you are. You are an exceptional person. You're, you're loved so much by God that he gave his only son for you. You're that valuable. You're not like everybody else. You're exceptional. And if I was Satan, what I would have to tell you every day of your life is you're not a child of God. You're nothing. You'll never amount to much. Of course he's going to say that to you. And yet God says, you are, you're an exceptional person. I put, I gave my son for you. I put my Holy Spirit in you. I'm going to change your character from the inside out. I'll give you power so that you really can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I'll give you the power to do everything that I ask you to do. I'll give you the ability to persevere under criticism and persecution. You don't have to be like everybody else. Why don't you just live like it's possible? That's my call to you. Live exceptional lives. It's possible. And he's calling you and me to encourage one another to live these holy, godly lives as we see this day approaching. Come on, friends. Let's encourage each other to live exceptional lives and to be loving. As the world gets more and more unloving, how brightly we can shine. Be exceptional. You can do it. 
The second application point, which is obvious in light of what we've just heard today, are you ready? Are you ready for the Lord's return? Like if tomorrow, that period of time, we find ourselves at the foot of that mountain and that last seven years begins, I mean, are you ready for his return? A lot of people say, well, I don't know. I mean, I hope, so. I'll just pray then. <laughs> no, you won't. The Bible says the return of the Lord will become as, as unexpected as a thief, like a twinkling of an eye, which is like not a blink of an eye. That's like the speed of light. So you'll try to whip off a prayer. Gee, too late. You know, you can't even get it out. You'll try to pray. It's too slow. Are you ready now? Let me read you a scripture here. This is Jesus' words on being ready now. I'll finish his chapter 24 for you. More importantly, I want to remind you in the last days, oh, no, I'm reading the wrong passage. <laughs> Here we go, Matthew chapter 24. Sorry about that. Verse 36, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father. So, so stop trying to figure out the date. Stop looking at CNN and the news and all Fox and all that, trying to figure out, is it, is it today? Listen, we just know the signs are here. You're not going to know the day or the hour, but here's what you can know. Listen now. I want you to listen. Listen to the words of Jesus as if he was right here talking to you. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, totally oblivious, up until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Isn't it interesting how the metaphor Jesus used was, before that judgment comes, I'm going to know how to take my righteous people out. That's how it'll be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and another left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken, the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. We're the generation seeing all of the signs. We're the generation that can see that the time is short and there's only a short period left. Christ is going to return when we least expect it. So let's be ready. Let's be ready to be exceptional people. Let's be ready to be on mission for him. Let's be ready to be wise. You know, we live in one of the greatest countries in the whole world, and we live in one of the best places in that whole country. Do you realize we're like in one of the top 10 communities in all of America? I mean, we are so blessed we're, we live such exceptional lives already, and God's calling us to even be more exceptional because the scriptures say, listen, to whom much is given, much is required. What does God require of you in light of these last days as a believer to, to make the most of the time that we have, to make the maximum contribution with your life, to not just waste it on the trivial, fr fr uh, frivolous uh, entertainments and just to enjoy you know, this life now as if this is all that there is. Hey, this life is not all that there is. This is just a shadow of what is to come. And God's got a great future for us. And I think it's just incumbent on us to bring as many people as possible with us and to let God's light shine to a dark world, to be exceptional and to be a light for him in this dark world because the days are short. Are you guys with me on this? Isn't this what we're supposed to be doing? So here's God's word for us. And what are we to do now in light of this? Well... What's the Holy Spirit saying to you today? Some of you might be anxious and actually in very like, 
whoa, I didn't know this was all written and I didn't understand and you're anxious about the am I ready question. Listen to me. God's not mad at you. God loves you and he's been so patient with you. He actually brought you here today to let you know that all you have to do is to humble yourself before him. You see, Jesus died on a cross already. The anointed one came. It looked like his life accomplished nothing, but it accomplished a lot. He took the judgment for sin upon him. So God says there is now no longer any condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. The problem is some of you just don't belong to him. You belong to yourself. You've been living your own self-ruled, self-governed, I do what I want, nobody's going to tell me what to do kind of life. Well, that has to go. What exceptional holy lives we ought to be living, okay? What does that mean? Well, it means consecrate yourself today. Well, I don't know what consecrate means. Well, I'll give you the opposite. It means desecrate. The opposite is desecrate. We all know how to do that, right? I mean, desecrating, we, we know how to make a mess and defile and desecrate. We, we got that part. So consecrate means just don't be, you know, it's not about being perfect, but set yourself apart. Like, I'm going to be different now. I'm going to follow Jesus. No, no more turning back. I'm going to give my life. I'm going to belong to him. When you do that, God gives his grace and his mercy to you. He forgives you for your sin. He already knows about it. He's not surprised. You don't have to clean up your act to come to God. He already knows, just like you know. You, you already know what's wrong. You don't have to have me or anybody else tell you. No judgment here. You already know. So you give your life to him and let him, let him just take you as you are. Let him forgive you. And so in the, just a moment, we're going to all receive a little cup little piece of bread symbolizing what Jesus did on the cross for us. We're going to share communion together. And in that moment, you have an opportunity to say, Jesus, you died for me. You bore the punishment for me. I, I'm going to remember what you did. You can give your life to Christ right at that moment. This table's open. This cup and this, this uh, communion is open to everyone, to anyone who would believe. Just say, Lord, I believe what you did for me. You know what? When Jesus on the last day, on the last night before he was betrayed, took bread and he broke it, he gave it to his disciples, he said, when you do this, remember me. Remember what I've done for you. But then he said this, remember this. I'm not going to eat or drink this again until I'm with you in heaven. We're going to be seated around a table in heaven someday, the great marriage supper of the Lamb. And he tells us to remember that one day we'll be with Jesus. This isn't just looking back, it's looking forward to what is to come, that someday you're gonna sit at a table with Christ. No more sin, no more brokenness, no more cancer, no more sickness, no more, nothing in between you and God. You're gonna celebrate and be with him forever. And in light of that opportunity, why wouldn't you want all of your family, all your brothers and sisters and moms and dads and cousins and relatives and neighbors, why wouldn't you all wanna be there, have them be there with you in that moment? There's a moment of decision to say, Lord, I want to leverage everything that I've got. I want to make the maximum contribution. Let my life shine brightly. Let me be wise in these days so I can represent you and that all who know me, every person in my life will be impacted and will come to know the true living Jesus. Get that vision of that moment that's in your future. Now, they're going to come and serve you as the worship team leads us in singing. And I just want you to pray. You have that moment with God. Some of you need that humble, God, forgive me. Some of you, God, I consecrate myself to you. God, I give you my whole life. I will dedicate myself for you for the rest of my life. You just pray quietly, maybe with your spouse just alone or with a friend, some people you came with. 
And when you're ready, you just eat and drink in remembrance of Jesus together. You can do that all on your own, and then we'll conclude in just a moment. But let me pray for you, and I'm going to invite them to come. Father, you're speaking to people today through your Holy Spirit. Let there be no anxiety here. Let a great sense of your peace come. Let every person who hears your voice respond to you today. May they say, yes, Lord Jesus, I give you my life. In fact, if I'm just praying your prayer and I say, Lord Jesus, forgive me, wash me, make me clean, saying, yes, God, that's me. God, I'm sorry for trying to be the boss and run my own life and ignore you. I want to belong to you today. Yes, God, that's me. Father, I just live like it's all about me. I have no thought for your kingdom. Today, I live for you from this day forward. Lord, today, I look forward to being with you in heaven. Holy Spirit, I pray you draw every person you're speaking to. Draw them to yourself. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.